All right, let's take a few seconds for uh, spiritual preparation, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for, again, this nation. We're thankful for um, the fact that you have established this nation uh, on biblical principles. We have a spiritual heritage. Uh, And it's so easy for us to read about Israel and wonder why they failed the way they did. And yet, in our own nation, we are doing the exact same thing. We pray that there would be an awakening that we would remember the blessings that we have come from our spiritual heritage. We are not blessed because we're such a great and wonderful people, but it's because of our relationship with you. Help us, Father, as we continue to study the Word of God, that our spiritual life would be our focus and that we would be strong in your power and your might. We're thankful for the text that we're going to study today, the book of Esther. Um, we pray, Father, that we will understand and learn from it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, today, the reason we are going to the book of Esther is because when we, we finished last week the chat, we, uh, chapter 6 in Ezra. And if you were looking at chapter 6 in Ezra... We know that we were talking about King Darius at the beginning of chapter 6. But when we arrive in chapter 7, we are addressing a time of King Artaxerxes. So, also in your intro, you should have a list of kings. And on your list, in your list of kings, this will help us a little bit. You'll see that Darius. There you go. It's back there somewhere. Darius the Great reigned from 522 to 486. So that period of time is going to fall in this period during the, the temple being rebuilt in Zerubbabel. And you'll remember that the temple was rebuilt and it was dedicated on 515. And that's really where the story of Zerubbabel ends. We saw that Haggai was in there. We went... Uh, we turned over and we read the book of Haggai and last week we spent some time in Zechariah as well now when we finish chapter 6 and arrive in chapter 7 we see that now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes well if we look at Artaxerxes we see that we're down in 465 and for uh, 465 to 424. So we really have gone quite a ways. We're getting here to Ezra, and that's the period where we're going to be in here. So we have a gap of 57 years, and we will find, when we turn over to Esther, the end of Nehemiah, Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, interesting name, um, that this is actually Xerxes. So Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes. And the X in uh, English really represents um, a Z sound. So instead of it being Uh, Kirksees or something like that. We just pronounce it Xerxes. So, the events that occur in Esther occur prior to chapter 7 
in Ezra. We, if, we, uh, if we skip over Esther, we've skipped over one of the kings. So here we are, right here in this gap. And so I thought before we went to Ezra, we would spend a little time in the book of Esther. So, Esther. What do we know about Esther here? Notes are rearranged here. In the English Bible, Esther, of course, appears right after Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's with the historical books. But in the Hebrew Bible, if we wanted to find it, it would be found in a section that's known as the Megaloth or uh, Megalot. Megala. Megala. Uh, Megillah is somehow, sometimes how it's pronounced. This is the plural, and this is... The singular, Megala, or, uh, and sometimes it's pronounced Megillah, which is interesting. And as I was studying that, it's the word really comes from, we add the M-E on the front to make it a noun, but it comes from the verb that means to roll. And so... Uh, gala means to roll, and so it really means a scroll. So this is scroll, scrolls. But at the Megillah, I don't know how many of you have ever heard the phrase. Just give me the details. Don't give me the whole Megillah. And I'd always thought... That referred well. I guess I have to say I don't know what you know. I had no idea what the uh, reference was. Um, the whole Megillah, you know, the whole gorilla, or you know, whatever it was. But it means just give me a small portion of it. Don't give me the whole scroll. So it comes from Yiddish. It comes from uh, uh, from Hebrew. Anyhow, it's part of the uh, scroll called the Megillah or uh, Megaloth. So, and in that scroll, we also have Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Ruth, and Lamentation. So it's just a a scroll of five books. Um, And for a long time, the book was not accepted in the biblical canon because, uh, as you may have heard, the word God is not mentioned through the entire book. And so it was thought that because it wasn't mentioned, it shouldn't be entered into the canon of Scripture. Well, uh, as the canon was pulled together, it was understood that what was being taught was certainly being taught about God. And the references to God, uh, while not explicit, were implicit. And so it entered into the, the canon of Scripture. Now, as we start, I don't want to belabor this too much, but it's the research that goes behind some of the things are always interesting. In the Hebrew, the uh, the title, and we always have to remember that in the Hebrew text, Hebrew writers didn't give titles. They always just referred to them by the opening phrase or the opening line of the book. So later on, when the Septuagint, the Greek translation, is being made from the Hebrew, so it's coming from the Hebrew into the Greek, those uh, translators gave the books titles. And they gave this book the name Esther. In the Hebrew, it's not TH, 
It's just T. And that's how we pronounce it. We pronounce it S-ter. And how we get S-ther, which is not the way we pronounce it, S-ter, just seems to be a, a, a reflection of the Greek letter that was used to represent the T. So Esther spelled this way, and I, I've been asked that question. Why do we pronounce it Esther instead of Esther? Well, it's because in the Hebrew it really is Esther. And some people think that <clears throat> the name may have come from Ishtar, but there's no, there's no validation for that. And while it's possible, we just don't know. So anyhow, this is a book that's written about the Jews who are in the land of Persia. And there are several prominent characters. One of them is Mordecai, and we're going to see his cousin, Esther, is also placed prominently here. So it's a wonderful little book, and... Uh, if I don't belabor it too long, maybe we can just read right through this book. Let's give it a try. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Azuerus, Ahasuerus, who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, Cush. Let's see, here's one of our maps that will help us to see that. This is huge territory all the way from India down to Ethiopia over here is what they're saying. So you can see it's, it is huge. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, which is also right here, Susa on this map, they had several um, palaces, several capital cities, and this is where he was at the time. <clears throat> the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, and this is going to be the third year of his reign, and if you look at your who we had when he reigned, we see that he again reigned <clears throat> from six four sixty five to four twenty four. So, uh, excuse me, this is. Uh, Xerxes. We're looking at Xerxes, 486 to 465. So this is approximately 482. Excuse me, going the other way. Uh, 480, yeah, I'm right, 482. I was going in the right direction. Going in reverse order there. So this is the third year of his reign. <clears throat> he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, and the word for powers there is probably better translated military leaders. It's the Hebrew word that we remember so clearly from Ruth. It's chayl. And it can mean wealth, it can mean power, it can mean strength, it can mean character, it can mean valiant. Here it probably means the military leaders of Media and Persia. Persia and Media. The nobles and the princes of the province being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Now, we believe in reading this that he didn't have a feast for 180 days, but that he started this opportunity for his, the noblemen and the military leaders and all to come to see what he was presenting to them, all these treasures. But you can imagine it would probably take a while for people coming from the distant parts of his kingdom to arrive to be able to see it. So they were invited, and as they arrived, he would show them, he would display for them the splendor of his majesty. Verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who who had... uh, who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So, the end of that time, he said, since you're all finally all here, why don't we have a, uh, <clears throat> a banquet, a feast? And so they have the seven-day feast. And that is going to set up 
uh, one of the situations that will lead to a further exhibition of or demonstration of the power of God. And that's why, as we read through here, we can't say, oh, that's an interesting incident, or that's an interesting event, or that's an interesting fact. No, something is happening here. God is causing certain things to come about that will lead us to other facts and actions. And so, in verse 6, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen. We see that the colors of the Persian Empire are white and blue. And that's important for us as we go through here as well. Uh, With cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. The idea here of uh, each vessel being different than the other is that he was a mighty king. He had many of these vessels, goblets from all over the kingdom because of the places they would conquer. They would bring back the gold and silver from there and all the uh, special... Uh, utensils and and things that they would use and uh, drinking cups, goblets gob, uh, were one of the ways that kings and royalty displayed their wealth is through the finery that they had and so here he has all of these things and all these people who are visiting him and they, he has you know everyone has a different cup. So it's a, a demonstration of his power, wealth. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Normally, when the king would drink, or when the king would say, we're going to have a toast, or whatever it was, everybody had to drink. But they suspended this, because this is going to be such a long time, that there he was allowing individuals to say, I think I've had enough, or whatever. And so it's an interesting commentary here that what this demonstrates is that he is a gracious king. And we'll see that as we go through. He's not, we shouldn't make him out to be a, uh, a tyrant or a, um, an inconsiderate person. But we do have, as we go through here, you know, as... Rulers will, will do at times. They will, they'll make mistakes. <clears throat> Verse 9 says, and we're introduced to his queen, queen, Queen Vashti, also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and now we have those who serve him. They're called eunuchs, and they could be that. They could be males that have been castrated in order to work with the harem in the uh, uh, palace, or they could be officials, because the word represented both simply officials. So we have here, he commanded uh, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Ah, Bagath, Zathar, Karkas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. Now there are a couple things to note here. First of all, it is on the seventh day of this uh, feast, this banquet. He uh, orders the queen to come. And you'll notice it says, wearing her royal crown. So this is an official visit. And sometimes we have to, uh, uh, as um, you know, individuals, we have to be careful mixing personal affairs and official affairs. And that's, this is an affair of state, is what that tells us. This is an affair of state. Um, But he's bringing her before the group. And some would say this was a 
a failure of judgment on his part. Well, we're not specific. This is not specifically uh, described in in detail, but we're going to see in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Uh, first of all, the situation is unusual. When we study the kings, uh, the Persian kings, they 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 did not mix uh, pers- their personal lives with the affairs of state. As a matter of fact, what we're told, at least historians believe, that the kings were often very respectful and treated their wives uh, with great privacy. So. We'll see this later when Esther says, I'd like to have a banquet with the king to include another individual. That's an unusual situation. Uh, It's not that they wouldn't have official affairs and the kings and queens wouldn't be there. But generally speaking, when the king and the queen were together for a meal or something like that, they really wouldn't include other people. It was really a special occasion to do that. So uh, to be called to the banquet... um, is somewhat of an unusual situation, but when we're told that she was to wear her royal crown, it tells us that uh, he was requesting her um, for a um, for an affair of state or for really what we could say is a command performance. Now, she refuses to come, and we're not given a reason. And there's been much speculation as to why she doesn't come. The author doesn't dwell on that. And so it's more or less either left to us to divine, or what the author is telling us is that the detail is not important at this point. It's, it sets up another situation for us. And so I think, there's again, there's been a lot of speculation. As a matter of fact, this was the year that Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes, was born. So there could have been a reason regarding the pregnancy. We don't know. And I think it's difficult and maybe even uh, inappropriate of us to speculate too much as to exactly why this happened. You know, some will say, well, he was out of line. Could very well be. But, you know, some say they, uh, he was requesting her to come and dance. Well, that would be really unusual. Secondly, wear the crown, so it's going to be uh, a, a command performance or it's going to be an official presentation. Um, but for some reason she declines. And that's going to set up a situation in which God is going to change the, uh, the course of history here for us. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice. And you'll see that this occurs. Uh, he appears, you know, at times, again, some might say he made a, a poor judgment with inviting the, king, the queen. We, we don't really know that. Uh, she made a poor judgment or she made the right decision. Well, we don't know that either. But you'll notice uh, he doesn't act rashly here. Now, he may not take good advice, but he looks for advice. And someone who is in charge of, as we can see, this huge kingdom, that's an important quality. That's an important trait. He makes the final decision based upon what he hears, but he's going to ask for advice. <clears throat> then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being... Karshina, Shathar, Admatha, it's interesting, Hebrew likes to accent the last syllable, English likes to accent the first syllable, so sometimes I mix these. Uh, Tarshish, or Tarshish, Meresh, Marsena, uh, Mermukan, the seven princes of Persia and Median. So these would be some of his higher ranking Advisors. That's what we understand here. Seven princes here doesn't mean that they are on, you know, necessarily in charge of various regions, although they could have been. 
who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the king of Ahasuerus brought to her by her eunuchs? All right. So, two things are happening here. Number one, when we look back up at the end of verse 12, again, we don't know why Queen Vashti didn't appear. We don't know that she normally would have, but she um, she disobeys the king's order, her, his, her command. So, she does that really at her peril. Now, the king, unfortunately, on his side, he either takes it personally or he feels, thinks, to a certain extent, he is restricted by law here. Well, she has just disobeyed a law, and she is just as much subject to me as anyone else. Now, you know, the question could be at this point whether he was, could have just graciously said, oh, don't worry about it. But for, a re- for some reason, he chooses not to. Verse 16. And Memorcon answered before the king and the princes. So he's speaking for the group. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also the princes and all the people who are in the providence of King Ahasuerus. Now, again, this may very well be a very short-sighted approach by this advisor. He could have very easily said, O king, yes, she did, but you know, there may have been other reasons. And of course, maybe they do know the reasons. And so maybe this was uh, at least a legitimate recommendation. But he sees it not only as slight to the king, but to all those, all the provinces, all the princes and all the people who are in the province of the king of Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. Now, this is probably uh, a bit inappropriate, but despise their husbands in their eyes when they report that King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him. But she did not come. It's possible, but you know that's not necessarily true. The idea here is what they're saying is, well, wait, wait till this gets out to all the women in the uh, kingdom. Uh, when their husbands say, let's do this or do that, and they'll say, well, if Queen Vashti doesn't have to obey her husband, well, we don't have to obey you. This very day, the noble ladies of Persian media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. Well, again, I think this is... It's always possible, but this is a bit excessive. And so this makes this advisor out to be someone who is giving uh, poor advice. The king is being served poorly here. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered. In other words, if it's put into the laws of the Persians and the Medes, it's a law that is not going to be altered. There apparently were other ways short of this to handle a uh, a command or a declaration. And the reply pleased the king. Here he is probably making a very poor judgment. But, again, this incident and the resultant action is going to set the stage for a follow-on action that's going to be... uh, play prominently in God's plan. And the, the, the reply pleased the king, and the princes and the king did according to the word of Memukan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. All right. Well, without too much commentary on that, let's move on to ver, ver, chapter 2. Chapter 2. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vasti. So apparently, we can see that his judgment in the end, at the end of chapter 1 is still done when he is upset. And of course, it's never wise to make a, a decision uh, in the uh, presence of your wrath. 
But it subsides, and he remembers Vasti, what he had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Now, these are young women. So he remembers what he's done and what he decreed against her. So the, the situation here is that he realizes what he's done, really, as it comes to him, and he realizes that that was probably excessive. That's the understanding that we have from verse 1. But it was done in the law of the Persians and Medes, so it can't be altered. So he's, he has to live with that decision. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young women, young virgins, be brought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the province of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins, young women, to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, his official custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Uh, The idea here was, and we'll see this as we go further into the text, that uh, all the women that would be brought up there to be part of the harem or to be part of the official uh, entourage of the palace could go through a rather extensive period of beauty treatment. This would probably be extraordinary, you know, spas and uh, massages and uh, all kinds of, of things that would occur. And it wouldn't occur just for a couple of days. It would go on for months, months of beauty treatment. Then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew. So now we start a new, uh, a new part of our study, or uh, the story here. And it says it was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish, of course, uh, is a name that plays prominently in Benjamite history, Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Remember, Jeconiah was brought back to uh, to Babylon. And so these are the people that were brought with him. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. So she's an orphan. And if I'm not completely mistaken, I think this makes her his cousin. So he's older than she is, and he's taking care of her. The young woman was lovely and beautiful, probably what we call Hendiades. They go together, and the idea here is that she was beautiful of form. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was, when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young women pleased him. Now the young woman pleased him. In other words, Haggai. And she obtained his favor. This is an interesting word, use of the word favor here. This is the word chesed, Hebrew word chesed. So there appears to be, um, we would normally translate it covenant faithfulness. But whatever the uh, relationship is between Haggai and these women, uh, it's it's a very strong one between uh, Esther and Haggai. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance, besides what she would normally receive. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So she has now been placed in a position of prominence where uh, she can receive special treatment and she also has special attention. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. So this is sort of a, you know, a parenthesis that we're given this inside information. This is going to be critical as we 
progress back to at least uh, to chapter 5. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So he's very concerned about her. Uh, His daughter, he took her for his daughter, so he's there. The idea is daily he would seek information about Esther to find out what's happening. Each young woman's turn, here we go, listen to this. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation. So this is an extensive preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation appointed. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparation for beautifying women. Verse 13, thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. So one at a time they would go to the king. In the evening she went and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women. In other words, go into the palace and on the other nights she wouldn't go back to where the other women were who were maybe soon to go in, but she would come back to another location. To the custody of Shahash guys, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king unless again the king delighted in her and called for her by name. All right, so she progresses from the Haggai who is in charge of preparation before they go to the king, and then uh, Shahash Gaz, the king's eunuch, who then took care of the ones who were accepted or approved and came back as concubines. Verse 15. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, this is the first time we hear of her father's name, and Avi, uh, here, Abi, is my father, and Chail is our word for power again, or might, or strength. So, my father is power or might, something of that nature. The uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. So, you know, she shows great prudence. She says to Haggai, uh, I trust your judgment. And what do you recommend I take in? Which, of course, is probably very prudent because... This is something he's been doing and does. He's a professional at it. And so he would recommend to her what she should do. And Esther obtained favor, grace, in the sight of all who saw her. So she treats everyone uh, wisely and prudently. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the, the, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So you can see we're progressing through his reign. It took a, a while for him to evaluate all of these, all the women that were brought to him because it was the third month of the year when King Vashti fell out of favor. The king loved Esther more than all the other women and she obtained grace and favor. Here we have probably another Hendites. They go together so it's sort of loving approval in his sight more than all the other young women, all the other versions. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. All right, so we've now set this stage and we're going to continue to add details to the story as we go. Verse 19, we have uh, the king now has a new queen and uh, we now start really sort of another uh, phase of of our play, so to speak. Verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, so... Uh, this is getting all of the harem together or 
uh, the possibility of that this is another at another time when there is another selection and not completely certain what is meant by this. But when the young ladies were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. So at that time, when there came another uh, either an opportunity for selection, Mordecai has progressed in his role in the kingdom. He sits in the gate, which in the in biblical terminology, it's a figure of speech that means he's an official. He now um, to sit in the gate meant very often to to uh, to be a judge or to be some sort of a ruler, someone who would be there to make decisions. That's the idea. So he has uh, attained a position. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. So this this is the second time we've been told this. So this is important. This is a critical fact. Shouldn't overlook this. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So, Mordecai is not just at some gate, but it's at the king's gate. So, what we really have here is uh, at Shusan, Susa over here, we probably have a fairly large city. And there would be people who ruled the city. And so there's an outer gate and maybe even other gates. But he's sitting at the gate of the citadel. So he really has progressed to a place where he is an official um, outside the king's gate. And it says these two doorkeepers. Well, two doorkeepers are probably not just doormen who are standing there, you know, with the big fall fuzzy hats and like you see in England. But these are two individuals who have special responsibilities within the palace. Um, and they're probably, when we call them doorkeepers, they're probably security. And they very well may be leaders of security forces here. So, again, trying to bring that into our, that, the history of it into our understanding. So, they're not, you know, these are not two people that are standing with their, you know, their backs to the door with uh, maybe a, a spear and a shield. And they say, you know, I really don't like this duty. I've had enough of this duty. I think I'll kill the king. No, that's not the situation. Okay. They are probably leaders in security. Maybe we might even associate them with the Secret Service. Something like that. Became furious and sought to assassinate, we could say, the king. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. What's great about this is that we see Mordecai doesn't try to gain uh, audience with the king. I want to speak to the king. No. He has, sort of, we might say, sort of a, a chain of command here, or a way of getting information to the king, and so he passes it through the queen, and by doing so, the queen is going to be highly esteemed in the king's uh, to the king but what queen esther does she says i got not me i got it from mordecai and so she gives the credit she doesn't take the credit to herself it's just a, a very interesting study here of two people mordecai who gives the information to queen esther and queen esther by giving this information to the king is going to be seen in great regard. Well, she doesn't try to take the credit to herself. She gives the credit to Mordecai. And again, this is just a small detail. Why in the world would we be told this? Because this is going to come up later in the story. Verse 23. And when an inquiry, when an investigation was made into the matter, it was confirmed. And both, it says, were hanged on a gallows. Uh, the word hanged here means to be lifted up 
and the word gallows, we really don't have the word for gallows. We have the word for pole or wood. And so uh, our historical study of the Persians, uh, the Medes, the Babylonians, you may remember we talked about this, I think, last week, is that they didn't really hang people. They impaled them. And so this is probably being lifted up and then impaled on a pole. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So this incident is written in the book of Chronicles. Again, another very critical fact. Let's uh, see if we can take chapter 3. I think, I think we can. Chapter 3. After these things, King Azararus, Asherus, promoted Haman, the son of ha Madatha, Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set and set his seat above all the princes who were with him, and all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and my translation says paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. The word therefore paid homage. Uh, in many other areas, is translated worship. Now, it may not have been that he should that it was the actual kind of worship that we would understand, but we're going to see that Mordecai sees it in either in that vein or certainly uh, something that would go beyond what he is going to want to do because he believes in God. It's almost like treating this individual as divinity. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? In other words, it's, you know, it's not only is it being pointed out to them, to him, but to others. That's the idea. It became known because we don't see an answer here at all. So it became known to many other people. Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them. So it's the idea, why are you uh, transgressing here? It's also, you should do it. You need to do it. That they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had said, had told them that he was a Jew. Now, there are some who question his... Um, his actions here because two things occur he decides he's not going to follow the king's command number one and number two he reveals that the reason he's not going to do it is because of his culture because of his he's Jewish and he's not going to do it but again this sets the stage for what follows then Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him did not worship him or just maybe pay homage Haman, when he saw this, Haman was filled with wrath. He's very angry. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. And we're not completely certain how this affects Mordecai and why. But it's at this point, we know that they now know that Mordecai is a Jew. So the people of Mordecai are probably going to be the Jews. That's how we interpret this. But why he is apprehensive to do something to Mordecai because of the Jews is not explicitly stated. It's possible that there is a large uh, population of Jews in the land because he's at such a uh, Mordecai is in such a rather high position, even though uh, not as high as Haman, that. Uh, there is some hesitancy on Haman's part here to act. Instead, what Haman said, instead of taking action against just Mordecai, I'm going to take action against all of them. He sought to lay hands on Mordecai, not on Mordecai alone, for they told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Seven. So, how does he do this? This is how he's going to, sort of the administration of this. In the first month, it's the first month of the year for them, which is the month of Nisan, or Nisan, in the twelfth year of King 
Ahasuerus. So we have progressed all the way to 474 B.C. This is the 12th year. That they cast pur. And the word pur means lot. Or it's a, a means of trying to make decisions. Casting stones or lots here. And you'll recognize that this is later going to be called... Uh, so it's cast a lot per, if you cast uh, two of them, or if you have a plural, it's purim. So, this sets up the later uh, feast or festival of purim. So they cast lots before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So, on the what they're trying to decide here, he's, he wants to destroy the Jews. And so now they're trying to pick out a time, well, when is it going to happen? And so they would get together and they would cast lots, and this was one of the ways they would make a decision. Well, this is the first month, and it falls on the twelfth month, which is interesting because it will allow, uh, first of all, it, one of the reasons it does is because it takes time to get the information out to the far extent of the empire, and we'll see that he's going to do that. But it is also going to give the Jews ample time to prepare to defend themselves. Anyhow, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the province of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Well, that's an exaggeration. He's got Mordecai here, who may not, but... um, Anyhow, therefore it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. And we need to wipe them out. If it pleases the king, let a decree to be, be written that they be destroyed. And, king, if you do that, I, Haman, will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. In other words, this, it's going to take a lot of effort for us to do, make the decree and get it sent out. It's expensive to the king. So, king, I'll tell you what. If you do this, I'll pay the expense for everything that needs to be done here, and I'll put it in the king's treasury. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. This is an approval, which means make it so. If uh, uh, the captain of the Enterprise was here, what was his name? The next one was... The one that used to say, make it so. No, I can't think of his name. He was the British one, the bald individual. Yeah. Yeah, Captain, anyhow. He would always say, make it so. So that's what this is happening here. Uh, he gave his signet ring to Haman, the son of Ha Madatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So here we have him identified as an enemy of the Jews. He wasn't just, this wasn't just occur because of Mordecai, but he in fact has some sort of a history here as an enemy of the Jews. Um, And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. In other words, you don't have to pay me to do that. You know, we'll just make it so. I'll pay for it. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's province to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. 
another important fact. So this is not only going out throughout all the land, but this is being proclaimed in the citadel because it's in the citadels where we're going to find two very important people. One is Mordecai, but the other one is Esther. So another little subtle fact here is that um, we're to destroy all the Jews, women and children, not just the not just the men. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. It says so. After this, they conducted business. They sat down. Mission accomplished. Done, Haman. But look, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. And that's an interesting commentary because, and I think, again, it has to do with the fact that this was an unusual command for the king to give. The Persians were not vengeful rulers. As a matter of fact, they were known as being rather benevolent. Now, they were vicious in war, but once they conquered an area, they allowed that area to... uh, continue with their own culture. They would often assist them in uh, uh, building their culture and working with them because they were trying to uh, keep peace within the far reaches of the empire. Uh, And the Persian kings uh, simply didn't operate this way. They didn't wipe out people, sections of people. And to a certain extent, there were in the... uh, Persia and in Susan, there were many different groups of people because they had been brought from far uh, reaches of the the empire. So you might have, you know, here's Israelites over here. There may be some Egyptians here. There may be some uh, Indians here. There may be people from Syria. There may be people from Turkey. There may be people from um, the mountains, the Medes. I mean, there's a lot of different people in the capital. And so when they hear they're going to wipe out a particular segment of the people, it's, well, why would they do that? Who's next is the idea. And so this is perplexing to the people. And so this demonstrates that this was an unusual situation. This was an unusual act. The king normally didn't treat his people this way. So we've now set the stage and it's not only a threat to the Jews throughout the kingdom and even in the capital city, but it's a threat to Esther. Esther now is Jewish. But you remember, nobody knows that. Nobody knows that she's Jewish. It hasn't uh, come to... um, come to the fore here, so we'll have to see what happens. All right, well, we got a little bit of a slow start, but uh, maybe next week we can come back and work in Esther. We only have seven more chapters here, but we're there's a lot more to cover here. At least another hour on this finger. Ah, another hour there? Okay. Uh, any questions so far? What we've done here? Yes. Yes, Esther is one of them. Song of Solomon is another one. Lamentations is another one. Ecclesiastes. I think that's five, isn't it? Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Oh, Ruth. Ruth. Ruth is the, the other one. Yes. Um, yeah, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations are the whole Megillah. Like if we opened it up, would that be like Malachi? No. No, as a matter of fact, 
it, the Hebrew, the composition, you know, the composition of the Hebrew Bible is much different than the English Bible. So, but if you open it, if you open your Bible thinking you're going to Revelation, matter of fact, if you thought you were going to the last verse of the last book in the last chapter of Revelation, you would have Bereshith in the beginning. That's it's just going to read in the exact opposite order in the, the Hebrew text. But then the that the Hebrew Bible isn't laid out, isn't grouped like ours is grouped. So you have the law first, and then you'll have the prophets, the, and and then the writings. That's right. And then the writings. Yeah, I'll bring my Hebrew Bible next week. I probably have one out here. The Megillah is a short. Yes, it's a short scroll that generally was at the end of the Hebrew that was was put into the. And again, we have to understand that they were all individual scrolls. So it was finally when it was compiled when we could um, put it together this way that this one scroll, the Megillah scroll, uh, was composed of these five books. And since they were they were short of the shorter ones, even though we've got prophets that are short as well, they decide they weren't prophecy. Ruth's not prophecy. Uh, uh, Lamentations is not prophecy. Uh, yeah, Song of Solomon is not. So they just put those together, and they just called it the scroll, and they put it at the end of the, uh, the Hebrew uh, Bible. I'll bring my text next time. Good question, though. It was really interesting as I was studying this uh, when I came across the word. Uh, it's... Because uh, in um, in Hebrew, our words start from verbs, and most of the Hebrew verbs are going to have three consonants. Uh, in Hebrew, we call them radicals, but they're three consonants, and they did not have vowels. They you know, it's just probably like us today. If someone was to write, you know, certain words, we would just recognize it without the vowels. Now, we start this word with the vowels, so that makes it more difficult. Uh, Hebrew doesn't do that. But if you were to, you know, to, to write a word like, someone would say, oh, it's lamb. Now, you may not have recognized it right away. But if you did that, you'd just recognize it. Well, for foreigners, you might say, who are trying to read Hebrew, we, we're just not going to pick up on that. So the translators started to add vowels uh, in various places. So that, or here, or something like that. And they would put the vowel pointing in to help, uh, first of all, retain the knowledge of Hebrew because it was becoming a dead language. And then later on, to help us uh, speak it later on. And again, uh, the uh, if you were to look at modern day Hebrew, there, there aren't any uh, vowel points. But anyhow, so we start words with the verb. And then we make them into nouns. And very often we make them into nouns by adding, uh, in this case, we would call it an M, a mem. That wasn't really a very poor mem. But it's... A mem. So here, when we get to Megillah, the verb form is here, but this makes it a noun. So... Like I said, I was studying that last night, and I came across it, and I was uh, I was pronouncing it uh, megaloth because it's plural. But when I started to do a little more research, I realized that uh, modern day Yiddish is uh, Megillah. <laughs> so, and I'd heard that phrase Megillah. I started to say, "What? Just give me the details. I didn't. I don't need the whole Megillah. Just give me Ruth." Not the whole Megillah. Just give me Esther. Not the whole Megillah. If that makes any sense. Ah, 
Let me close in prayer. I don't need to give you the whole Megillah. Just close in prayer. Dear Holy Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to study the book of, of Esther. We're thankful for this story. We're thankful for uh, the demonstration of how you work in history and how all of these things are working together to bring about uh, your honor and your glory. And we're thankful, Father, that we have this opportunity to come here today to have this study and to, uh, again, learn more about you. We ha- and help us to apply this in our lives. And we also are thankful, Father, uh, for this season where we'll have a chance to vote. We pray that the people of this nation will understand the truth, that the truth will be revealed, that we will understand that there is great deception here and um, misdirection and in some cases just outright lies. Help us to be able to discern the truth and then make the right decisions. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.